Uh, Today's passage comes to us from Acts 13, verses 21 to 23. Let's all rise for the reading of God's word. We'll read Acts 13, and then we'll jump to Psalm 51. Verses 21 to 23, this is how it reads, the word of the Lord. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now let's go to Psalm 51, verses 1 to 10. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth. And in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's uh, pray once more. Father God, we commit this message into your hands and pray for the faithful teaching of your word. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. So uh, I was once a young man, and it was a few years back, and uh, back then I was a big fan of, of history. And uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, Before I became a Christian, when I first encountered the Bible, I was somewhat disappointed by the stories which I encountered. You see, being a fan of history, I was used to inspirational stories that stir the heart and mind of heroes overcoming great challenges that impact and change the course of nations and empires. Many of you have seen the movie 300, with its buff-cut, topless Spartan warriors. But the movie is actually based on the true battle of Thermopylae that occurred back in 480 BC. The Persian Empire was moving west, and Xerxes seek to conquer all of Greece. Now, Greece at that time was a bunch of um, ununified city-states, and they just tended to fight against one another and were ill-prepared to take on the might of the Persian Empire. It was assumed that like all the other nations before it, Greece would just topple over and would have no chance to survive. But what the Greeks did is they needed to buy some time. So they they sent a small Greek army north to a place called Thermopylae. And the goal was to try and delay Xerxes and his mighty army. 
The Greek historian Herodotus estimates that the Persian army came to a million people. Now, most modern historians kind of question that, and they surmise that in terms of the actual fighting troops, it was somewhere between 100 and 150,000. But having said that, the Greeks went to Thermopylae with about 7,000. The goal was to try and defend a very narrow passage. There was a place at Thermopylae which had the Aegean Sea on one side and high mountains on the other. And the thinking was that maybe a small force of soldiers could hold off the might of Persia and give Greece time to organize, unify, and prepare for the hordes of Persia. So King Leonidas of Sparta uh, set out, and they succeeded in blocking that passage for seven days. But at one point, a local farmer who was trying to make some money went to Xerxes, the king of Persia, a farmer by the name of Ephelides, and he told Xerxes about a mountain path used by goats and used by traders. And Xerxes would use this to encircle the Greeks and come up from behind. Leonidas was aware of the path, and he actually had watchmen waiting to see if it would be used, and indeed it was. And so at that point, Leonidas sent most of the army back to Athens because he would need them to fight another day. But he stayed behind with 300 Spartans and 700 Thespians, and they managed to hold off Leonidas to give the army time to escape. They would all die, of course. They would fight to the death. But the rest of Greece would be given time to organize and to mobilize. And inspired by the example of Leonidas and the 300, at the Battle of Plataea, Greece would defeat the might of Persia and the army of Xerxes. And Persia would never again attempt to take on Greece. But what if Xerxes had conquered all of Greece? I suspect, would be, I suspect history would be very different today. You see, Greece is here and Macedonia is just above it. And some 100 years after this, Alexander the Great would emerge from Macedonia. I kind of doubt that would have happened if that was now part of the Persian Empire. And then I wonder if the Roman Empire would have ever emerged because Xerxes might have just kept on going east, and at Rome, that time would have been a pretty easy conquest. And if Rome didn't emerge, what would have happened to the emergence of Western Europe and its domination of world history? So such tales as these stirred my soul and my imagination as a young man. However, when I turned to the Bible, I found no such heroics. In fact, I seemed to find the opposite. You know, most of the main characters in the Bible seem to be weak and fallen individuals who seem to just keep on messing up. And I was like, you know, come on. I mean, you know, where's the inspirational story of men overcoming great odds? You know, starting with Adam in the garden being exiled, and then as he's being exiled, he tries to put the blame on Eve, and Eve in turn, you know, puts the blame on the servant. You know, there was Abraham, you know, my, you know our, our first patriarch, but what did he do when he went to Egypt? Well, he was worried that because his wife was beautiful, the Egyptians would kill him. And so he told his wife, pretend to be my sister. And so he pretended to be his sister. And then, you know, Pharaoh took him, took her as, as a concubine or as a wife. And I don't really know how I would have felt about my husband if I was Pharaoh. 
you know, Jacob, you know, one of the other patriarchs, would steal Esau's birthright and deceive his father in order to, what, to get what he wanted. You all know the story of Jonah, who ran away from God. Um, eventually God grabbed him, pulled him back, sent him to Nineveh, and told him, you know, God's going to pronounce judgment on you and wipe you out. But then God showed mercy on Nineveh and did not wipe out the Assyrian capital. How did uh, Jonah respond? He went under a tree and he pouted. Because he wanted God to wipe out that entire city because that's what, you know, it makes him look bad if he didn't do it. In the New Testament, the disciples don't fare much better. The disciples tend to be pretty comical features. You see them kind of jockeying for position because they think Jesus is going to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And they want to be his right-hand man and his left-hand man. They constantly fail to understand the teachings of Jesus. And then in the moment of Jesus' greatest need, they abandon him and they desert him, even as he dies on the cross for their sins. These individuals and narratives hardly inspired. And I wondered, how did these stories even end up in the Bible? I was not a Christian yet, but I thought I knew good propaganda. And I surmised that if, if you wanted to promote a world religion and to convince people to join it, surely you could do a better job of pre presenting your protagonists in the best possible light and to omit these episodes of human failure. After all, that's what history typically does. Winston Churchill once stated that history is written by the winners. You see, we tend to romanticize our heroes and we demonize our villains. Churchill himself is an example of this because before World War II, he was pretty much a failure. During World War I, he was part of a disastrous campaign in Gallipoli that saw the death of many Australian New Zealand soldiers. He was a pretty much a failed politician before 1939. And then through an unusual series of events, Hitler invaded Poland, the Prime Minister of England, Chamberlain, resigned, and all of a sudden Churchill found himself Prime Minister. He would go on to become England's greatest wartime Prime Minister, thus rewriting the narrative of his own life. Many of his shortcomings and failings were soon forgotten and ignored, and he was portrayed as being something greater than what he actually was. And you see, that's what we do. The winners are portrayed as the good guys and made out to be better than they are. And the losers are made out to be villains and made out to be worse than they are. Historians know that you need to read between the lines to get to the truth. They know they need to go to alternate sources. They know there is this tendency for us to distort the truth. And in this sense, the Bible is very, very different in the sense that its main characters are not sanitized. They are not romanticized. They are revealed for the fallen individuals that they are, with their shortcomings, failures, and struggles exposed. Furthermore, the motivations of their hearts are not whitewashed, but exposed for the reader so that we do not need to read between the lines. I had questioned why had the authors of scripture not cleaned things up. And then one day it finally occurred to me and hit me like a wall. Even though I was still not a Christian, 
it occurred to me that maybe these accounts are there because this is simply how it happened. That this is an accurate and true account of historic events. But not only was it an accurate description of historic events, it was also an accurate diagnosis about the state of the human heart, about man's spiritual condition, and ultimately about God himself. It was a piece of literature unlike any other, ancient or modern. Moreover, personally, this book, the Bible, spoke truth into the messiness of my own life. In time, it would come also to provide true and genuine hope amidst that messiness. And the Bible would prove to have far more power to change and transform than romanticized stories about Achilles, Hannibal, or William Wallace. In today's passage, we have such an example, an example which actually spoke to me before I became a Christian and as I became a Christian and continues to speak to me today. King David is portrayed in the Bible as an ideal king and as a foreshadowing of the future Messiah. Jesus himself is called the son of David 12 times in the New Testament, and he is the fulfillment of much which was promised in and to David. Having said that, David would fail in a spectacular fashion, and in many ways, David would destroy the life which God had blessed him with. And yet somehow, God would redeem him from this desperate state. His adultery with Bathsheba would result in David murdering her husband Uriah, and in turn, that would result in David's own son trying to kill him, and it sparked a civil war that would ravage Israel. Despite this, Scripture tells us that God redeemed and restored David, and he is described as a man after God's own heart in both the Old and New Testaments. Now, bear in mind, this is not your typical story of a sinner who does not know God, coming to know God, and then repenting. David fell at a time when he shouldn't have fallen. He fell at a time when he knew God intimately. For before this, his faith in God had caused him to take on the giant Goliath and to defeat him. He was God's anointed king. And in God's name, he would go out and win mighty victories for Israel. And yet, despite knowing God so intimately, David will fall so far into adultery, murder, and treason. But therein lies the hope for us. If God could redeem David, then too he can redeem us. If we can pull up Acts 13. So in Acts 13, um, we see Luke quoting 1 Samuel 13, when Samuel pronounced God's judgment to reject Saul as king, and because of his sin, to establish David as king. But what occurred to me so many years ago, if God could restore David, why could he not restore Saul? Was it because Saul's sins were more serious than David's? Well, Scripture gives us the two reasons why Saul was rejected. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul was disobedient. He was commanded to take on the Philistines and to defeat them. But before doing so, he had to wait 
for the prophet Samuel to come and do an offering before um, Saul could go on to fight the Philistines. Saul waited seven days, and Samuel did not appear. And he was beginning to sense that he was going to lose his strategic advantage to defeat the Philistines. So he rationalized and took things into his own hands, and he offered the offering himself. No sooner had he done so than Samuel appeared and said, What have you done? and rebuked Saul for his disobedience. Not good, but maybe not quite as bad as adultery, murder, and treason. The second reason that God rejected Saul as king is found in 1 Samuel 15. Saul had defeated the Israelites' traditional enemies, the Amalekites. But Saul failed to obey God's command here too because God commanded Saul to not only defeat the Amalekites, but to destroy them. And Saul spared the king of Amalek, Agag. And he also failed to kill all the animals that he had been instructed. He killed the weak animals, but the robust ones and the strong ones, he and the people of Israel kept for themselves. Now, it seems to me that David's sins of murder and adultery were far more egregious than Saul's. His sins were that of impatience about doing the offering and keeping a few animals that he coveted. So it can't be that that Saul's sins were greater than David's. So then why did God not restore Saul? Perhaps it was the fact that David confessed and, and Saul did not, but that's not the case. So David, when confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13, responds, I have sinned against the Lord. But so too did Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, 25, when he was confronted by Samuel, Saul also stated, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. So they both admitted their sin and both appeared to repent, but only David is forgiven and redeemed. And the question is why? We're going to delve deeper into two narratives. And I think we're going to see two distinct types of repentance. One being a very soft and superficial repentance, as manifested by Saul. And David is going to display to us a very genuine and heartfelt repentance. So let's first examine Saul's response when confronted by Samuel as found in 1 Samuel 15. So again, the context here is that Saul has just defeated the Amalekites, but he didn't kill Agag, and he didn't kill all the animals as instructed. So starting at verse 12, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And Samuel came to Saul... And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. 
the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took up the spoil, sheep and oxen. The best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said to Saul, You have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So as we think on this passage, do you think Saul demonstrated genuine repentance? I mean, he confessed it, right? He said, I sinned. So shouldn't God forgive him? So let's delve a little bit deeper into this soft repentance. So we see in verses 13 and 20 that first of all, Saul pretends that he did obey God's word when he knows he did not. He tries to absolve himself by twisting God's words. In verses 15 and 21, then Saul attempts to shift blame away from himself to the people that he is king over. And he blames them for not destroying the animals. In verse 24, he professes that because he fears the people, he gave into their desire to keep the best of the animals. And by so doing, Saul cared more about what the people thought of him than what God thought of him. And then finally in verses 23 and 24, it is not until Saul is told God's judgment upon him that he will be removed as king does he finally confess his sins. Saul does not confess because he feels bad about, he, about what he did. He does not confess because he's repenting. He's confessing because of the consequences. He's confessing because God is going to take away his kingship. Saul's profession of confession of sin is superficial and God sees through it. But Saul really just cares about himself and God knows that. Now in some ways I can relate to Saul, perhaps even more so than David. I haven't murdered anybody recently or caused a civil war, um, but I often ignore or trivialize my own sin and fail to see it as God sees it. I make excuses, and I fear what man thinks of me more than what God thinks of me. I'm very good at shifting blame to others, and I'm all too often preoccupied with my own story, my own journey, rather than walking with my God and being part of his larger narrative. So let's compare Saul's response to David's response as found in Psalm 51. 
So Psalm 51 is the best-known psalm of repentance in the Bible. And it helps us to understand why David is indeed called a man after God's own heart. The context of Psalm 51, most of you know well, but I'll summarize it. Um, It's the springtime. It's the time when kings go to war. And for whatever reason, David chooses not to go to war, but to stay in Jerusalem. Instead, he sends his army under the command of uh, Joab to take on the Ammonites. So David's meant to be at war, but instead he's in Jerusalem. And while he's there, he sees Bathsheba. He desires her. He commands her to come into his presence. He commits adultery, and he makes her pregnant. In order to try and cover up what he has done, he tells Joab to send Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battle and have him come back and report to me the status of the battle. David's intent is for Uriah to come home, to sleep with his wife, and thereby to cover up David's sin. But Uriah the Hittite, being a man of the utmost integrity, being one of David's faithful mighty men, refuses to go home to his wife. He says, far be it for me to enjoy the comforts of home and the comforts of my wife when my men are in battle waging your war. So David then goes to plan B, and he decides that he has to kill Uriah. So he sends Uriah back to the battle, and this is where David commits treason because he's jeopardizing his own army, and his own nation. And he tells Joab to put Uriah in a spot where the fighting is the most fierce. And then when the fighting is at its peak, withdraw from Uriah and abandon him. The plan succeeds. Uh, Uriah is killed. And David thinks he has succeeded in covering up his sin. But then Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him about two men. He tells him about a rich man, wealthy with abundant livestock, and a poor man with just a single animal, a baby lamb. One day, we are told, well, before that, that this baby lamb is something that the poor man treats as one of his own children. It sits at his table at night. It eats the morsel of food which are on the table. It sits with the other children. It drinks water from the poor man's cup. And the poor man even lies with this one small animal and holds it. One day, the rich man had a visitor. And in order to prepare a meal, instead of killing one of his own animals, he took the poor man's animal and he killed it and used it to prepare the meal. When David heard this, he became angry. So much so that David becomes indignant and tells Dathan that this man deserves to die. At which point, Nathan then tells David that he is that man. Psalm 51 is David's response to being confronted by Nathan about what he has done, about being that man. Psalm 51. Starting at verse 1, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In each of these simple five verses, we see a very stark and dramatic contrast to how Saul responded to sin. Starting off in verse 1, we see that unlike Saul... There is no pretense that he did not sin. He fully acknowledges that he sinned and he makes no excuses for his sin. All David does is ask for God's mercy and forgiveness. In verse 2, we have this image of a ceremonial washing, something that the priest would do before they went into God's presence. And here we have David's desire to be cleansed, to be purified so that he too can once again enter into fellowship with his God. In verse 3, we see that David does not trivialize his sin or pretend that it is the exception, but recognizes and sees that he has not just committed sin, but that he is fundamentally a sinner in need of redemption. In verse 4, While Saul is worried about what the people think of him, David cares only about what God thinks. David recognizes that he sins first and foremost against God. Not Bathsheba, not Uriah, not Israel, but God. And he states this twice for emphasis, that it is God he has failed. It is God that he has sinned against. Also in verse 4, we see that God, unlike Saul, does not try to evade God's judgment. Saul is worried about losing his kingdom. But in verse 4, David tells us that God's judgment, God's punishment is just. And And David is prepared to take on whatever judgment God will mete out to him. He only requests and desires that God not withdraw his presence. And in verse 5, God does not see himself as a fundamentally good person who occasionally makes a mistake. He realizes that sin is deeply entrenched within his psyche. It is deep within his makeup from birth. And that adultery and murder was something his sinful nature was always capable of, given the right circumstances. David demonstrates a genuine and true repentance by not only seeing his sin and confessing his sin, but also hating his sin and mourning his sin. He desires nothing more than God's presence in his life. And God knows the motivation of David's heart, just as he knows the motivation of Saul's. Does that mean that David gets off scot-free? No. David will still have to bear the consequences for his actions. Yes, he's redeemed, but it doesn't mean that the judgment goes away. 
And Nathan pronounces God's judgment in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. The child who is born to you shall die. And this judgment shall come to pass. The baby in Bathsheba's womb will die. Absalom's son will try to become king and try to kill David. So starting a civil war, David will be forced to run away from Jerusalem and hide. Eventually, Absalom will be killed. But as opposed to celebrating that, David will then mourn the death of his son, Absalom. However, God does not complain or grumble against God's judgment. He accepts it because his God is just. He just asks that God stay with him and bear with him through his tribulations and through this judgment. David can go through anything, providing he walks with his God. Now, you might think all this talk about sin, about repentance and judgment is somewhat depressing, but in fact, the opposite is true. Because ignoring the reality of our state doesn't make it go away. But only here in Scripture do we find an answer, do we find a solution. And David demonstrates this to us in the rest of Psalm 51, which I ask you to, to read and meditate upon this week, and also in many of the other Psalms. You see, David is liberated from his, from his burden about trying to be something that he is not. He is liberated by being able to confess his sins openly to his God, who can make him whiter than snow and purify him and redeem him. And so David responds with rejoicing, praise, and worship, even in the midst of so much calamity. Before I became a Christian, this passage helped me to understand what Christianity is about and what it isn't about. I assumed, as I think many people do, that Christianity is just about trying to be a good person and earning God's favor, about God being nice to me and giving me good things, and then maybe one day I get to go to heaven. I understand that that's not what the Christian message is. That scripture shows me what is in my heart, it exposes the gravity of my sin and how much I have hurt God, that I am indeed deserving of judgment. And like Saul, I often fail to recognize how much I have injured God and how deep my sin is. But I would discover that God loved me so much that he would indeed send his one and only son to die on the cross on my, in my place as a judgment for my sins that God himself would redeem and restore me into fellowship with him. As a Christian today, this passage continues to confront me with this challenge. Is my heart more like Saul's or is it more like David's? Do I tend to believe the lie that I'm fundamentally a good person with the occasional indiscretion and expect God to bless me no matter what I do? Or do I desire God more than anything else, realizing that my sin is ever before me? Do I continue on to deep, heartfelt, genuine repentance that leads to restoration and redemption by his grace and mercy? 
My prayer and my hope is that we may all truly know God as David knew him, that we may understand and embrace the transforming power of genuine repentance upon our hearts so that we too can walk with our God just as David did, and not just in the good times, but especially in the tough times when we need him most. But when those tough times come, it'll be okay, providing we continue to walk with our God and Redeemer and our Savior, as David did. Um, Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that penetrates deep into our innermost being and convicts our hearts and spirits. We thank you that we do not need to pretend to be something that we are not. We thank you for the example of real people like David who show us the path to true repentance and genuine fellowship and intimacy with you. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart as we sang today. Father God, purge us with hyssop and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. In Jesus' 